Welcome to CraftLit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 463, Beach! This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by its listeners. Many thanks and much gratefulness to all of the listeners who have gone over to patreon.com slash craftlet and pledged their support to the show. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Well, hello. You are hearing me, but I am not here for you. I am, I am at the beach right now. Or actually, I'm on my way to the beach right now. But that doesn't mean I could let you suffer because, ooh, chapters. So I told you last week that we have 95, 96, and 97. Those are our chapters for today. Father and Daughter, Marriage Contract, and The Road for Belgium. Now, we had three big chapters last week. We've got three big chapters this week. And you may wonder why I'm stuffing so many chapters together at one time, aside from just, holy garbanzo beans, let's get to the end of the book. It is because they actually are uh, unified parts of the story. You know, we're, we're kind of finally at a point where we, we need to catch up with groups of people. It's kind of like an episode of, of Lost or Game of Thrones or something where you've got this big episodic sweeping story. And sometimes one episode is just devoted to one character's plotline. So last week we dealt with Fraunon and that was a one-off but it wasn't long enough. So Valentin and a confession were the two that were unified. Today's episode, all three of these are unified, and you can probably guess which family we're going to focus on because of chapter 96, the marriage contract. You are going to hear Eugenie speak this week, which is, you know, kind of stunning because I don't remember her saying much more than two words the entire book. So for a thousand pages, she hasn't spoken. She talks a lot today. She has a line where she rolls off a whole bunch of names all at once. The first name in the list is Pasta, and it just sounds so odd. These were all opera stars, opera singers. Remember, she's the vocalist. Her friend is the pianist. You'll hear a reference to the Porte Saint-Martin or the Gate. This is G-A-I-T-E. These were sites of theaters that were popular at the time. And actually, you're going to hear a few references to theaters in today's chapters, because you're also going to hear a reference to Dorante, Valère, and Alceste, and the Théâtre Français. This is also sometimes called the Comédie Française. This was uh, the theater that Molière, I can't remember if he started it, but he sure was like the headliner for this particular theater. All of his comedies were huge. And Alceste is a character from his play, his very famous play Tartuffe, which is a play that you will probably see getting staged more and more often in the next several years. And it is well worth a look-see. It's a funny play. As long as they have doors that can slam. Americans don't often get this, but all of the humor in these kind of sitting room comedies is entrances and exits. And if you can't have 
sneaky entrances where somebody's peeking around side of a door, but also everybody leaves the stage at once in a panic, hoping that nobody saw them and they all slam the doors at once. It's funny and it doesn't work if you can't slam the door. So I don't know if you can call a theater and say, hey, does your set include actual doors? But it's it's probably not a bad idea to check. In our second chapter, 96, The Marriage Contract, there is a small chunk of Latin that gets stated. It's quirens quem devoret, which is the devil. The whole before and after this quote is talking about the devil. This part is seeking somebody who he can devour. So if somebody is walking in like a devil, seeking someone who he could devour, that's what you should have in your imagination when you hear the little Latin phrase. And the only other thing to know is there's a reference to Heracles and Omphale. This is O-M-P-H-A-L-E. She was the queen of Lydia. She bought Heracles. This is Heracles, Hercules, same guy. In the story, she, she purchases him at a, a slave auction. She doesn't know who he is. And they go traipsing around together. And at one point, she says, okay, well, let's change clothes. So she dressed as the guy. He dressed as a woman. That is not the only time you're going to hear a reference to this in this last section of the book. And it probably won't surprise you that every time we hear references like this, we are somewhere near Eugenie. You'll hear more about that shortly. But that's pretty much it for our Before the Chapter notes. So let's listen to chapter 95, 96, and 97, Father and Daughter, The Marriage Contract, and The Road for Belgium in The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 95. Father and Daughter. We saw in a preceding chapter how Madame Danglars went formally to announce to Madame de Villefort the approaching marriage of Eugénie Danglars and Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti. This announcement, which implied, or appeared to imply, the approval of all the persons concerned in this momentous affair, had been preceded by a scene to which our readers must be admitted. We beg them to take one step backward and to transport themselves, the morning of that day of great catastrophes, into the showy, gilded salon we have before shown them, and which was the pride of its owner, Baron Danglars. In this room, at about ten o'clock in the morning, the banker himself had been walking to and fro for some minutes, thoughtfully and in evident uneasiness, watching both doors and listening to every sound. When his patience was exhausted, he called his valet. Etienne, said he, see why Mademoiselle Eugenie has asked me to meet her in the drawing-room, and why she makes me wait so long. Having given this vent to his ill-humour, the baron became more calm. Mademoiselle Danglars had that morning requested an interview with her father, and had fixed on the gilded drawing-room as the spot. The singularity of this step, and above all its formality, had not a little surprised the banker, who had immediately obeyed his daughter by repairing first to the drawing-room. Etienne soon returned from his errand. Mademoiselle's lady's maid says, sir, that mademoiselle is finishing her toilette and will be here shortly. Danglars nodded to signify that he was satisfied. To the world and to his servants, Danglars assumed the character of the good-natured man and the indulgent father. 
This was one of his parts in the popular comedy he was performing, a make-up he had adopted and which suited him about as well as the masks worn on the classic stage by paternal actors, who, seen from one side, were the image of geniality and from the other showed lips drawn down in chronic ill-temper. Let us hasten to say that in private the genial side descended to the level of the other, so that generally the indulgent man disappeared to give place to the brutal husband and domineering father. "'Why the devil does that foolish girl who pretends to wish to speak to me not come into my study? And why on earth does she want to speak to me at all?' He was turning this thought over in his brain for the twentieth time, when the door opened and Eugenie appeared, attired in a figured black satin dress, her hair dressed and gloves on as if she were going to the Italian opera. "'Well, Eugenie, what is it you want with me? And why in this solemn drawing-room, when the study is so comfortable?' "'I quite understand why you ask, sir,' said Eugenie, making a sign that her father might be seated. "'And, in fact, your two questions suggest fully the theme of our conversation. I will answer them both, and contrary to the usual method, the last first, because it is the least difficult.' I have chosen the drawing-room, sir, as our place of meeting, in order to avoid the disagreeable impressions and influences of a banker's study. Those gilded cash-books, drawers locked like gates of fortresses, heaps of bank-bills, come from I know not where, and the quantities of letters from England, Holland, Spain, India, China, and Peru, have generally a strange influence on a father's mind and make him forget that there is in the world an interest greater and more sacred than the good opinion of his correspondence. I have therefore chosen this drawing-room, where you see, smiling and happy in their magnificent frames, your portrait, mine, my mother's, and all sorts of rural landscapes and touching pastorals. I rely much on external impressions. Perhaps with regard to you they are immaterial, but I should be no artist if I had not some fancies. "'Very well,' replied Monsieur Donglars, who had listened to all this preamble with imperturbable coolness, but without understanding a word, since, like every man burdened with thoughts of the past, he was occupied with seeking the thread of his own ideas in those of the speaker. "'There is, then, the second point cleared up, or nearly so,' said Eugenie, without the least confusion, and with that masculine pointedness which distinguished her gesture and her language. "'And you appear satisfied with the explanation. Now, let us return to the first. You ask me why I have requested this interview. I will tell you in two words. Sir, I will not marry Count Andrea Cavalcanti.' Danglars leapt from his chair, and raised his eyes and arms towards heaven. "'Yes, indeed, sir,' continued Eugenie, still quite calm. "'You are astonished, I see, for since this little affair began, I have not manifested the slightest opposition, and yet I am always sure, when the opportunity arrives, to oppose a determined and absolute will to people who have not consulted me, and things which displease me. However, this time... My tranquillity or passiveness, as philosophers say, proceeded from another source. It proceeded from a wish. 
like a submissive and devoted daughter. A slight smile was observable on the purple lips of the young girl. To practice obedience. Well? asked Danglars. Well, sir, replied Eugenie, I have tried to the very last, and now that the moment has come, I feel in spite of all my efforts that it is impossible. But, said Danglars, whose weak mind was at first quite overwhelmed with the weight of this pitiless logic, marking evident premeditation and force of will. What is the reason for this refusal, Eugenie? What reason do you assign? My reason, replied the young girl. Well, it is not that the man is more ugly, more foolish, or more disagreeable than any other. No, Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti may appear to those who look at men's faces and figures as a very good specimen of his kind. It is not either that my heart is less touched by him than any other. That would be a schoolgirl's reason which I consider quite beneath me. I actually love no one, sir. You know it, do you not? I do not then see why, without real necessity, I should encumber my life with a perpetual companion. Has not some sage said, nothing too much? And another, I carry all my effects with me. I have been taught these two aphorisms in Latin and in Greek. One is, I believe, from Phaedrus, and the other from Bias. Well, my dear father, in the shipwreck of life, for life is an eternal shipwreck of our hopes, I cast into the sea my useless encumbrance, that is all, and I remain with my own will, disposed to live perfectly alone, and consequently perfectly free." "'Unhappy girl! Unhappy girl!' murmured Danglars, turning pale, for he knew from long experience the solidity of the obstacle he had so suddenly encountered. "'Unhappy girl?' replied Eugenie. "'Unhappy girl, do you say, sir?' "'No, indeed. The exclamation appears quite theatrical and affected. Happy, on the contrary, for what am I in want of?' The world calls me beautiful. It is something to be well received. I like a favorable reception. It expands the countenance, and those around me do not then appear so ugly. I possess a share of wit and a certain relative sensibility which enables me to draw from life in general. For the support of mine, all I meet with that is good, like the monkey who cracks the nut to get at its contents. I am rich." for you have one of the first fortunes in France. I am your only daughter, and you are not so exacting as the fathers of the Porte Saint-Martin and Getty, who disinherit their daughters for not giving them grandchildren. Besides, the provident law has deprived you of the power to disinherit me, at least entirely, as it has also of the power to compel me to marry Monsieur this or Monsieur that, and so, being beautiful, witty, somewhat talented, as the comic operas say, and rich, and that is happiness, sir. Why do you call me unhappy? Danglars, seeing his daughter smiling, and proud even to insolence, could not entirely repress his brutal feelings, but they betrayed themselves only by an exclamation. Under the fixed and inquiring gaze levelled at him from under those beautiful black eyebrows, he prudently turned away 
and calmed himself immediately, daunted by the power of a resolute mind. "'Truly, my daughter,' replied he with a smile, "'you are all you boast of being, excepting one thing. I will not too hastily tell you which, but would rather leave you to guess it.' Eugenie looked at Danglars, much surprised that one flower of her crown of pride, with which she had so superbly decked herself, should be disputed. "'My daughter,' continued the banker, "'you have perfectly explained to me the sentiments which influence a girl like you, who is determined she will not marry. Now it remains for me to tell you the motives of a father like me, who has decided that his daughter—' shall marry eugenie bowed not as a submissive daughter but as an adversary prepared for a discussion my daughter continued danglars when a father asks his daughter to choose a husband he has always some reason for wishing her to marry some are affected with the mania of which you spoke just now that of living again in their grandchildren this is not my weakness i tell you at once family joys have no charm for me i may acknowledge this to a daughter whom i know to be philosophical enough to understand my indifference and not to impute it to me as a crime this is not to the purpose said eugenie let us speak candidly sir i admire candor oh said danglars I can, when circumstances render it desirable, adopt your system, although it may not be my general practice. I will therefore proceed. I have proposed to you to marry, not for your sake, for indeed I do not think of you in the least at the moment. You admire candor, and will now be satisfied, I hope. But because it suited me to marry you as soon as possible— on account of certain commercial speculations I am desirous of entering into. Eugenie became uneasy. "'It is just as I tell you, I assure you, and you must not be angry with me, for you have sought this disclosure. I do not willingly enter into arithmetical explanations with an artist like you, who fears to enter my study, lest she should imbibe disagreeable or anti-poetic impressions and sensations. But in that same banker's study, where you were very willingly presented yourself yesterday to ask for the thousand francs I give you monthly for pocket-money, you must know, my dear young lady, that many things may be learned, useful even to a girl who will not marry. There one may learn, for instance— what, out of regard to your nervous susceptibility, I will inform you of in the drawing-room, namely, that the credit of a banker is his physical and moral life, that a credit sustains him as breath animates the body, and Monsieur de Monte Cristo once gave me a lecture on that subject which I have never forgotten. There we may learn that as credit sinks, the body becomes a corpse, and this is what must happen very soon to the banker who is proud to own so good a logician as you for his daughter. But Eugenie, instead of stooping, drew herself up under the blow. "'Ruined?' said she. "'Exactly, my daughter. That is precisely what I mean,' said Danglars, almost digging his nails into his breast, 
while he preserved on his harsh features the smile of the heartless, though clever man. Ruined. Yes, that is it. Ah, oh, said Eugenie. Yes, ruined. Now it is revealed, this secret so full of horror, as the tragic poet says. Now, my daughter, learn from my lips how you may alleviate this misfortune, so far as it will affect you. Oh, cried Eugenie, you are a bad physiognomist. If you imagine I deplore on my own account the catastrophe of which you warn me, I ruined? And what will that signify to me? Have I not my talent left? Can I not, like pasta, malibran, greasy, acquire for myself what you would never have given me? Whatever might have been your fortune, a hundred or a hundred and fifty thousand livres per annum, for which I shall be indebted to no one but myself, and which, instead of being given as you gave me those poor twelve thousand francs, with sour looks and reproaches for my prodigality, will be accompanied with acclamations, with bravos, and with flowers. And if I do not possess that talent, which your smiles prove to me you doubt, should I not still have that ardent love of independence, which will be a substitute for wealth, and which, in my mind, supersedes even the instinct of self-preservation? No, I grieve not on my own account. I shall always find a resource— my books, my pencils, my piano, all the things which cost but little and which I shall be able to procure will remain my own. Do you think that I sorrow for Madame Danglars? Undeceive yourself again. Either I am greatly mistaken, or she has provided against the catastrophe which threatens you, and which will pass over without affecting her. She has taken care for herself, at least I hope so for her attention has not been diverted from her projects by watching over me. She has fostered my independence by professedly indulging my love for liberty. Oh, no, sir, from my childhood I have seen too much, and understand too much, of what has passed around me for misfortune to have an undue power over me. From my earliest recollections I have been beloved by no one, so much the worse, that has naturally led me to love no one, so much the better. Now you have my profession of faith. Then, said Danglars, pale with anger, which was not at all due to offended paternal love, then, mademoiselle, you persist in your determination to accelerate my ruin? Your ruin? I accelerate your ruin? What do you mean? I do not understand you. "'So much the better. I have a ray of hope left. Listen.' "'I am all attention,' said Eugenie, looking so earnestly at her father, that it was an effort for the latter to endure her unrelenting gaze. "'Monsieur Cavalcanti,' continued Danglars, "'is about to marry you, and will place in my hands his fortune, amounting to three million livres.' "'That is admirable,' said Eugenie, with sovereign contempt, smoothing her gloves out, one upon the other. "'You think I shall deprive you of those three millions?' said Danglars. "'But do not fear it. They are destined to produce at least ten. I and a brother banker have obtained a grant of a railway. 
the only industrial enterprise which in these days promises to make good the fabulous prospects that law once held out to the eternally deluded Parisians in the fantastic Mississippi scheme. As I look at it, a millionth part of a railway is worth fully as much as an acre of waste land on the banks of the Ohio. We make in our case a deposit on a mortgage, which is an advance, as you see, since we gain at least ten, fifteen, twenty or a hundred livres worth of iron in exchange for our money. Well, within a week, I am to deposit four million for my share. The four million, I promise you, will produce ten or twelve. But during my visit to you the day before yesterday, sir, which you appear to recollect so well, replied Eugenie, I saw you arranging a deposit, is not that the term, of five million and a half. You even pointed it out to me in two drafts on the treasury, and you were astonished that so valuable a paper did not dazzle my eyes like lightning. Yes, but those five million and a half are not mine, and are only a proof of the great confidence placed in me. My title of popular banker has gained me the confidence of charitable institutions, and the five million and a half belong to them. At any other time, I should not have hesitated to make use of them, but the great losses I have recently sustained are well known, and, as I told you, my credit is rather shaken. That deposit may be at any moment withdrawn, and if I had employed it for another purpose— I should bring on me a disgraceful bankruptcy. I do not despise bankruptcies, believe me, but they must be those which enrich, not those which ruin. Now, if you marry Monsieur Calvalcanti and I get the three million, or even if it is thought I am going to get them, my credit will be restored, and my fortune, which for the last month or two has been swallowed up in gulfs which have been opened in my path by an inconceivable fatality, will revive. Do you understand me? Perfectly. You pledge me for three million, do you not? The greater the amount, the more flattering it is to you. It gives you an idea of your value. Thank you. One word more, sir. Do you promise me to make what use you can of the report of the fortune Monsieur Cavalcanti will bring without touching the money? This is no act of selfishness, but of delicacy. I am willing to help rebuild your fortune, but I will not be an accomplice in the ruin of others. But since I tell you, cried Danglars, that with these three million, do you expect to recover your position, sir, without touching those three million. I hope so. If the marriage should take place and confirm my credit. Shall you be able to pay, Monsieur Cavalcanti, the five hundred thousand francs you promise for my dowry? He shall receive them on returning from the mayor's. Very well. What next? What more do you want? I wish to know if, in demanding my signature, you leave me entirely free in my person. Absolutely. Then, as I said before, sir, very well. I am ready to marry Monsieur Cavalcanti. But what are you up to? Ah, that is my affair. What advantage should I have over you if, knowing your secret, 
I were to tell you mine. Danglars bit his lips. Then, said he, you are ready to pay the official visits, which are absolutely indispensable? Yes, replied Eugenie. And to sign the contract in three days? Yes. Then in my turn I also say, very well. Danglars pressed his daughter's hand in his. But, extraordinary to relate, the father did not say, thank you, my child. Nor did the daughter smile at her father. Is the conference ended? asked Eugenie, rising. Danglars motioned that he had nothing more to say. Five minutes afterwards, the piano resounded to the touch of Mademoiselle d'Armilly's fingers, and Mademoiselle Danglars was singing Brabantio's malediction on Desdemona. At the end of the piece, Etienne entered, and announced to Eugenie that the horses were in the carriage, and that the baroness was waiting for her to pay her visits. We have seen them at Villefort's. They proceeded then on their course. End of chapter 95 Chapter 96 The Contract Three days after the scene we have just described, namely towards five o'clock in the afternoon of the day fixed for the signature of the contract between Mademoiselle Eugenie Danglars and Andrea Cavalcanti, whom the banker persisted in calling Prince, a fresh breeze was stirring the leaves in the little garden in front of the Count of Monte Cristo's house, and the Count was preparing to go out. While his horses were impatiently pawing the ground, held in by the coachman who had been seated a quarter of an hour on his box, the elegant phaeton with which we are familiar rapidly turned the angle of the entrance gate and cast out on the doorsteps Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti, as decked up and gay as if he were going to marry a princess. He inquired after the Count with his usual familiarity, and ascending lightly to the second story, met him at the top of the stairs. The Count stopped on seeing the young man. As for Andrea, he was launched, and when he was once launched, nothing stopped him. "'Ah, good morning, my dear Count,' said he. "'Ah, Monsieur Andrea,' said the latter, with his half-jesting tone, "'how do you do?' "'Charmingly, as you see. I am come to talk to you about a thousand things. But first tell me, were you going out, or just returned?' "'I was going out, sir.' "'Then in order not to hinder you, I will get up with you, if you please, in your carriage, "'and Tom shall follow with my phaeton in tow.' "'No,' said the Count, with an imperceptible smile of contempt, "'for he had no wish to be seen in the young man's society. "'No, I prefer listening to you here, my dear Monsieur Andrea. "'We can chat better indoors, and there is no coachman to overhear our conversation.' The Count returned to a small drawing-room on the first floor, sat down, and, crossing his legs, motioned to the young man to take a seat also. Andrea assumed his gayest manner. "'You know, my dear Count,' said he, "'the ceremony is to take place this evening. At nine o'clock the contract is to be signed at my father-in-law's.' "'Ah, indeed,' said Monte Cristo. "'What, is it news to you?' "'Has not Monsieur Danglars informed you of the ceremony?' "'Ah, yes,' said the Count. "'I received a letter from him yesterday. "'But I do not think the hour was mentioned.' "'Possibly my father-in-law trusted to its general notoriety.' "'Well,' said Monte Cristo, 
"'You are fortunate, Monsieur Cavalcanti. "'It is a most suitable alliance you are contracting, "'and Mademoiselle Donglar is a handsome girl.' "'Yes, indeed, she is,' replied Cavalcanti, in a very modest tone. "'Above all, she is very rich, at least I believe so,' said Monte Cristo. "'Very rich, do you think?' replied the young man. "'Doubtless.' "'It is said Monsieur Danglars conceals at least half of his fortune.' "'And he acknowledges fifteen or twenty millions,' said Andrea, with a look sparkling with joy. "'Without reckoning,' added Monte Cristo, "'that he is on the eve of entering into a sort of speculation already in vogue in the United States and in England, but quite novel in France.' "'Yes, yes, I know what you mean.' "'The railway of which he has obtained the grant, is it not?' "'Precisely. "'It is generally believed he will gain ten millions by that affair.' Ten millions! "'Do you think so? "'It is magnificent!' said Cavalcanti, "'who was quite confounded at the metallic sound of these golden words. "'Without reckoning,' replied Monte Cristo, "'that all his fortune will come to you, and justly too.' "'Since Mademoiselle Donglar is an only daughter, "'besides your own fortune, as your father assured me, "'is almost equal to that of your betrothed. "'But enough of money matters. "'Do you know Monsieur Andrea? "'I think you have managed this affair rather skilfully. "'Not badly, by any means,' said the young man. "'I was born for a diplomatist.' "'Well, you must become a diplomatist.' "'Diplomacy, you know, is something that is not to be acquired. "'It is instinctive. "'Have you lost your heart?' "'Indeed, I fear it,' replied Andrea, "'in the tone in which he had heard Durante or Valere "'reply to Alceste at the Théâtre Français. "'Is your love returned?' "'I suppose so,' said Andrea with a triumphant smile. "'Since I am accepted, but I must not forget one grand point.' "'Which? "'That I have been singularly assisted.' "'Nonsense. "'I have indeed. "'By circumstances?' "'No, by you.' "'By me? "'Not at all, Prince,' said Monte Cristo, "'laying a marked stress on the title. "'What have I done for you? "'Are not your name, your social position, "'and your merit sufficient?' "'No,' said Andrea. "'No, it is useless for you to say so, Count. "'I maintain that the position of a man like you "'has done more than my name, my social position, and my merit.' "'You are completely mistaken, sir,' said Monte Cristo coldly, "'who felt the perfidious manoeuvre of the young man "'and understood the bearing of his words. "'You only acquired my protection "'after the influence and fortune of your father had been ascertained.' "'For, after all, who procured for me, "'who had never seen either you or your illustrious father, "'the pleasure of your acquaintance? Two of my good friends, Lord Wilmore and the Abbe Busoni. "'What encouraged me not to become your surety, "'but to patronise you? "'Your father's name, so well known in Italy and so highly honoured. "'Personally, I do not know you.' This calm tone and perfect ease made Andrea feel that he was, for the moment, restrained by a more muscular hand than his own, and that the restraint could not be easily broken through. 
"'Oh, then my father has a really very large fortune, Count.' "'It appears so, sir,' replied Monte Cristo. "'Do you know if the marriage settlement he promised me has come?' "'I have been advised of it. "'But the three millions?' "'The three millions are probably on the road.' "'Then I shall really have them.' "'Oh, well,' said the Count, "'I do not think you have yet known the want of money.' Andrea was so surprised that he pondered the matter for a moment, then arousing from his reverie, "'Now, sir, I have one request to make to you, which you will understand, even if it should be disagreeable to you.' "'Proceed,' said Monte Cristo. "'I have formed an acquaintance, thanks to my good fortune with many noted persons, and have, at least for the moment, a crowd of friends. But marrying—' as I am about to do before all Paris. I ought to be supported by an illustrious name, and in the absence of the paternal hand some powerful one ought to lead me to the altar. Now my father is not coming to Paris, is he? He is old, covered with wounds, and suffers dreadfully, he says in travelling. Indeed? Well, I am come to ask a favour of you. Of me? "'Yes, of you.' "'And pray what may it be?' "'Well, to take his part.' "'Ah, oh, my dear sir, what, after the varied relations I have had the happiness to sustain towards you, can it be that you know me so little as to ask such a thing? Ask me to lend you half a million, and, although such a loan is somewhat rare, on my honour you should annoy me less.' "'Know then what I thought I had already told you, "'that in participation in this world's affairs, "'more especially in their moral aspects, "'the Count of Monte Cristo has never ceased "'to entertain the scruples and even the superstitions of the East. "'I, who have a seraglio at Cairo, "'one at Smyrna, and one at Constantinople, "'preside at a wedding? Never.' "'Then you refuse me?' "'Decidedly.' "'And were you my son or my brother, I would refuse you in the same way.' "'But what must be done?' said Andrea, disappointed. "'You said just now that you had a hundred friends.' "'Very true, but you introduced me at Monsieur Danglars.' "'Not at all. Let us recall the exact facts. "'You met him at a dinner-party at my house, "'and you introduced yourself at his house.' "'That is a totally different affair.' "'Yes, but by my marriage you have forwarded that.' "'I? Not in the least. I beg you to believe. Recollect what I told you when you asked me to propose you. Oh, I never make matches, my dear prince. It is my settled principle.' Andrea bit his lips. "'But at least you will be there.' "'Will all Paris be there?' "'Oh, certainly.' "'Well, like all Paris, I shall be there too,' said the Count. "'And will you sign the contract?' "'I see no objection to that. My scruples do not go thus far.' "'Well, since you will grant me no more, I must be content with what you give me. But one word more, Count.' "'What is it?' "'Advice.' "'Be careful.' "'Advice is worse than a service. "'Oh, you can give me this without compromising yourself. 
"'Tell me what it is.' "'Is my wife's fortune five hundred thousand livres?' "'That is the sum Monsieur Danglars himself announced.' "'Must I receive it, or leave it in the hands of the notary?' "'This is the way such affairs are generally arranged, when it is wished to do them stylishly. Your two solicitors appoint a meeting. When the contract is signed, for the next or the following day, then they exchange the two portions, for which they each give a receipt. Then, when the marriage is celebrated, they place the amount at your disposal as the chief member of the alliance.' "'Because,' said Andrea, with a certain ill-concealed uneasiness. "'I thought I heard my father-in-law say that he intended embarking our property in that famous railway affair of which you spoke just now.' "'Well,' replied Monte Cristo, "'it will be the way, everybody says, of trebling your fortune in twelve months. Baron Danglars is a good father, and knows how to calculate.' "'In that case,' said Andrea. Everything is all right excepting your refusal, which quite grieves me. You must attribute it only to natural scruples under similar circumstances. Well, said Andrea, let it be as you wish. This evening, then, at nine o'clock. Adieu till then. Notwithstanding a slight resistance on the part of Monte Cristo, whose lips turned pale, but who preserved his ceremonious smile. Andrea seized the Count's hand, pressed it, jumped into his phaeton, and disappeared. The four or five remaining hours before nine o'clock arrived, Andrea, employed in riding, paying visits, designed to induce those of whom he had spoken to appear at the bankers in their gayest equipage, dazzling them by promises of shares in schemes which have since turned every brain, and in which Danglars was just taking the initiative. In fact, at half-past eight in the evening, the grand salon, the gallery adjoining, and the three other drawing-rooms on the same floor were filled with a perfumed crowd, who sympathized but little in the event, but who all participated in that love of being present wherever there is anything fresh to be seen. An academician would say that the entertainments of the fashionable world are collections of flowers which attract inconstant butterflies, famished bees, and buzzing drones. No one could deny that the rooms were splendidly illuminated. The light streamed forth on the gilt mouldings and the silk hangings, and all the bad taste of decorations which had only their richness to boast of shone in its splendour. Mademoiselle Eugenie was dressed with elegant simplicity in a figured white silk dress, and a white rose, half concealed in her jet-black hair, was her only ornament, unaccompanied by a single jewel. Her eyes, however, betrayed that perfect confidence which contradicted the girlish simplicity of this modest attire. Madame Danglars was chatting at a short distance with Debray, Beauchamp, and Chateau Renaud. Debray was admitted to the house for this grand ceremony, but on the same plane with everyone else and without any particular privilege. Monsieur Danglars, surrounded by deputies and men connected with the revenue, was explaining a new theory of taxation which he intended to adopt when the course of events had compelled the government to call him into the ministry. Andrea, on whose arm hung one of the most consummate dandies of the opera, 
was explaining to him rather cleverly, since he was obliged to be bold to appear at ease, his future projects, and the new luxuries he meant to introduce to Parisian fashions with his hundred and seventy-five thousand livres per annum. The crowd moved to and fro in the rooms like an ebb and flow of turquoises, rubies, emeralds, opals, and diamonds. As usual, the oldest women were the most decorated, and the ugliest the most conspicuous. If there was a beautiful lily or a sweet rose, you had to search for it, concealed in some corner behind a mother with a turban, or an aunt with a bird of paradise. At each moment, in the midst of the crowd, the buzzing and the laughter, the doorkeeper's voice was heard announcing some name well known in the financial department, respected in the army or illustrious in the literary world, and which was acknowledged by a slight movement in the different groups. But for one whose privilege it was to agitate that ocean of human waves, how many were received with a look of indifference or a sneer of disdain? At the moment when the hand of the massive timepiece representing Endymion asleep, pointed to nine on its golden face, and the hammer, the faithful type of mechanical thought, struck nine times, the name of the Count of Monte Cristo resounded in its turn, and as if by an electric shock, all the assembly turned towards the door. The Count was dressed in black, and with his habitual simplicity, his white waistcoat displayed his expansive noble chest, and his black stock was singularly noticeable because of its contrast with the deadly paleness of his face. His only jewellery was a chain, so fine that the slender gold thread was scarcely perceptible on his white waistcoat. A circle was immediately formed around the door. The Count perceived at one glance Madame Donglars at one end of the drawing-room, Monsieur Donglars at the other, and Eugenie in front of him. He first advanced towards the baroness, who was chatting with Madame de Villefort, who had come alone, Valentine being still an invalid, and without turning aside, so clear was the road left for him, he passed from the baroness to Eugenie, whom he complimented in such rapid and measured terms that the proud artist was quite struck. Near her was Mademoiselle Louise d'Armilly, who thanked the Count for the letters of introduction he had so kindly given her for Italy which she intended immediately to make use of. On leaving these ladies, he found himself with Donglars, who had advanced to meet him. Having accomplished these three social duties, Monte Cristo stopped, looking around him with that expression peculiar to a certain class, which seems to say, I have done my duty, now let others do theirs. Andrea, who was in an adjoining room, had shared in the sensation caused by the arrival of Monte Cristo, and now came forward to pay his respects to the Count. He found him completely surrounded. All were eager to speak to him, as is always the case with those whose words are few and weighty. The solicitors arrived at this moment, and arranged their scrawled papers on the velvet cloth embroidered with gold which covered the table prepared for the signature. It was a gilt table, supported on lion's claws. One of the notaries sat down, the other remained standing. They were about to proceed to the reading of the contract, which half Paris assembled was to sign. All took their places, or rather the ladies formed a circle, while the gentlemen, more indifferent to the restraints of what Boileau calls the energetic style, 
commented on the feverish agitation of Andrea, on Monsieur Danglars' riveted attention, Eugenie's composure, and the light and sprightly manner in which the baroness treated this important affair. The contract was read during a profound silence, but as soon as it was finished, the buzz was redoubled through all the drawing-rooms. The brilliant sums, the rolling millions which were to be at the command of the two young people, and which crowned the display of the wedding presents and the young lady's diamonds, which had been made in a room entirely appropriated for that purpose, had exercised to the full their delusions over the envious assembly. Mademoiselle Danglars' charms were heightened in the opinion of the young men, and for the moment seemed to outvie the sun in splendour. As for the ladies, it is needless to say that while they coveted the millions, they thought they did not need them for themselves, as they were beautiful enough without them. Andrea, surrounded by his friends, complimented, flattered, beginning to believe in the reality of his dream, was almost bewildered. The notary solemnly took the pen, flourished it above his head, and said, "'Gentlemen, we are about to sign the contract.' The baron was to sign first, then the representative of Monsieur Cavalcanti Senior, then the baroness, afterwards the future couple— as they are styled in the abominable phraseology of legal documents. The baron took the pen and signed, then the representative. The baroness approached, leaning on Madame de Villefort's arm. "'My dear,' said she, as she took the pen, "'is it not vexatious? An unexpected incident in the affair of murder and theft at the Count of Monte Cristo's, in which he nearly fell a victim.' deprives us of the pleasure of seeing Monsieur de Villefort. "'Indeed,' said Monsieur Danglars, in the same tone in which he would have said, "'Oh, well, what do I care?' "'As a matter of fact,' said Monte Cristo, approaching, "'I am much afraid that I am the involuntary cause of his absence.' "'What, you count?' said Madame Danglars, signing. "'If you are, take care, for I shall never forgive you.' Andrea pricked up his ears. "'But it is not my fault, as I shall endeavour to prove.' Everyone listened eagerly. Monte Cristo, who so rarely opened his lips, was about to speak. "'You remember,' said the Count, during the most profound silence, "'that the unhappy wretch who came to rob me died at my house. The supposition is that he was stabbed by his accomplice,' on attempting to leave it. "'Yes,' said Danglars. "'In order that his wounds might be examined, he was undressed, and his clothes were thrown into a corner, where the police picked them up, with the exception of the waistcoat, which they overlooked.' Andrea turned pale, and drew towards the door. He saw a cloud rising in the horizon, which appeared to forebode a coming storm." "'Well, this waistcoat was discovered to-day, "'covered with blood and with a hole over the heart.' "'The lady screamed, and two or three prepared to faint. "'It was brought to me. "'No one could guess what the dirty rag could be. "'I alone suspected that it was the waistcoat of the murdered man. "'My valet, in examining this mournful relic, "'felt a paper in the pocket and drew it out. "'It was a letter addressed to you, Baron.' "'To me?' 
cried Danglars. "'Yes, indeed, to you. "'I succeeded in deciphering your name "'under the blood with which the letter was stained,' "'replied Monte Cristo, amid the general outburst of amazement. "'But,' asked Madame Danglars, "'looking at her husband with uneasiness, "'how could that prevent Monsieur de Villefort?' "'In this simple way, madame,' replied Monte Cristo. "'The waistcoat and the letter were both what is termed "'circumstantial evidence.' I therefore sent them to the king's attorney. You understand, my dear baron, that legal methods are the safest in criminal cases. It was, perhaps, some plot against you. Andrea looked steadily at Monte Cristo, and disappeared in the second drawing-room. Possibly, said Danglars, was not this murdered man an old galley-slave? Yes, replied the count a felon named Caderousse. Danglars turned slightly pale. Andrea reached the ante-room beyond the little drawing-room. "'But go on signing,' said Monte Cristo. "'I perceive that my story has caused a general emotion, and I beg to apologize to you, Baroness, and to Mademoiselle Danglars.' The Baroness, who had signed, returned the pen to the notary. "'Prince Cavalcanti,' said the latter. "'Prince Cavalcanti, where are you?' "'Andrea, Andrea,' repeated several young people who were already on sufficiently intimate terms with him to call him by his Christian name. "'Go, le prince, inform him that it is his turn to sign,' cried Danglars to one of the floor-keepers. But at the same instant the crowd of guests rushed in alarm into the principal salon, as if some frightful monster had entered the apartments, Quarums quem deveret. There was indeed reason to retreat, to be alarmed, and to scream. An officer was placing two soldiers at the door of each drawing-room, and was advancing towards Danglars, preceded by a commissary of police, girded with his scarf. Madame Danglars uttered a scream and fainted. Danglars, who thought himself threatened, certain consciences are never calm, Danglars, even before his guests, showed a countenance of abject terror. "'What is the matter, sir?' asked Monte Cristo, advancing to meet the commissioner. "'Which of you gentlemen,' asked the magistrate, without replying to the count, "'answers to the name of Andrea Cavalcanti?' A cry of astonishment was heard from all parts of the room. They searched, they questioned. "'But who then is Andrea Cavalcanti?' asked Danglars in amazement. "'A galley-slave escaped from confinement at Toulon.' "'And what crime has he committed?' "'He is accused,' said the commissary, with his inflexible voice, "'of having assassinated the man named Caderousse, his former companion in prison, at the moment he was making his escape from the house of the Count of Monte Cristo.' Monte Cristo cast a rapid glance around him. "'Andrea,' was gone. End of chapter 96 Chapter 97 The Departure for Belgium A few minutes after the scene of confusion produced in the salons of Monsieur Danglars by the unexpected appearance of the brigade of soldiers, and by the disclosure which had followed, the mansion was deserted with as much rapidity 
as if a case of plague or of cholera morbus had broken out among the guests. In a few minutes, through all the doors, down all the staircases, by every exit, everyone hastened to retire, or rather to fly, for it was a situation where the ordinary condolences, which even the best friends are so eager to offer in great catastrophes, were seen to be utterly futile. There remained in the banker's house only Danglars, closeted in his study and making his statement to the officer of gendarme, Madame Danglars, terrified, in the boudoir with which we are acquainted, and Eugenie, who with a haughty air and disdainful lip had retired to her room with her inseparable companion, Mademoiselle Louise d'Armilly. As for the numerous servants, more numerous that evening than usual, for their number was augmented by cooks and butlers from the Café de Paris, venting on their employers their anger at what they termed the insult to which they had been subjected. They collected in groups in the hall, in the kitchens, or in their rooms, thinking very little of their duty, which was thus naturally interrupted. Of all this household, only two persons deserve our notice. These are Mademoiselle Eugénie d'Anglars and Mademoiselle Louise d'Armilly. The betrothed had retired, as we said, with haughty air, disdainful lip, and the demeanour of an outraged queen, followed by her companion, who was paler and more disturbed than herself. On reaching her room, Eugenie locked her door, while Louise fell on a chair. "'Ah, oh, what a dreadful thing!' said the young musician. "'Who would have suspected it? Monsieur Andrea Cavalcanti, a murderer, a galley-slave escaped, a convict!' An ironical smile curled the lip of Eugenie. "'In truth, I was fated,' said she. "'I escaped the Morcerf only to fall into the Cavalcanti.' "'Oh, do not confound the two, Eugenie. "'Hold your tongue. "'The men are all infamous, "'and I am happy to be able now to do more than detest them. "'I despise them. "'What shall we do?' asked Louise. "'What shall we do? "'Yes.' "'Why, the same we had intended doing three days since. "'Set off.' "'What? "'Although you are not now going to be married, "'you intend still... "'Listen, Louise. "'I hate this life of the fashionable world, "'always ordered, measured, ruled like our music paper. "'What I have always wished for, desired and coveted, "'is the life of an artist, free and independent.' "'relying only on my own resources "'and accountable only to myself. "'Remain here? "'What for? "'That they may try a month hence to marry me again? "'And to whom? "'Monsieur de Bray, perhaps, as it was once proposed. "'No, Louise, no. "'This evening's adventure will serve for my excuse. "'I did not seek one. "'I did not ask for one. "'God sends me this, and I hail it joyfully. "'How strong and courageous you are!' said the fair, frail girl to her brunette companion. "'Do you not know me? Come, Louise, let us talk of our affairs. The post-chaise. Was happily brought three days since. Have you had it sent where we are to go for it? Yes. Our passport? Here it is.' And Eugenie, with her usual precision, opened a printed paper and read. "'Monsieur Leon d'Armilly, Twenty years of age, profession, artist. Hair black, eyes black, travelling with his sister. Capital! How did you get this passport? 
When I went to ask Monsieur de Monte Cristo for letters to the directors of the theatres at Rome and Naples, I expressed my fears of travelling as a woman. He perfectly understood them, and undertook to procure for me a man's passport, and two days after I received this, to which I had added with my own hand, travelling with his sister. "'Well,' said Eugenie cheerfully, "'we have then only to pack our trunks. We shall start the evening of the signing of the contract, instead of the evening of the wedding. That is all.' "'But consider the matter seriously, Eugenie.' "'Oh, I am done with considering. I am tired of hearing only of market reports, of the end of the month, of the rise and fall of Spanish funds, of Haitian bonds. Instead of that, Louise, do you understand?' Air. "'Liberty, melody of birds, plains of Lombardy, Venetian canals, Roman palaces, the Bay of Naples. "'How much have we, Louise?' "'The young girl to whom this question was addressed "'drew from an inlaid secretary a small portfolio with a lock, "'in which she counted twenty-three banknotes. "'Twenty-three thousand francs,' said she. "'And as much, at least, in pearls, diamonds, and jewels,' said Eugenie. "'We are rich.' With forty-five thousand francs, we can live like princesses for two years, and comfortably for four. But before six months, you with your music, and I with my voice, we shall double our capital. Come, you shall take charge of the money, I of the jewel-box, so that if one of us has the misfortune to lose her treasure, the other will still have hers left. Now, the portmanteau. Let us make haste. The portmanteau. Stop! said Louise, going to listen at Madame Danglars' door. "'What do you fear?' "'That we may be discovered.' "'The door is locked.' "'They may tell us to open it.' "'They may if they like, but we will not.' "'You are a perfect Amazon, Eugenie.' And the two young girls began to heap into a trunk all the things they thought they should require. "'There now,' said Eugenie, "'while I change my costume,' "'Do you lock the portmanteau?' Louise pressed with all the strength of her little hands on the top of the portmanteau. "'But I cannot,' said she. "'I am not strong enough. Do you shut it?' "'Ah, you do well to ask,' said Eugenie, laughing. "'I forgot that I was Hercule, and you only the pale omphale.' And the young girl, kneeling on the top, pressed the two parts of the portmanteau together, and Mademoiselle d'Armilly passed the bolt of the padlock through. When this was done, Eugenie opened a drawer of which she kept a key, and took from it a wadded violet silk travelling cloak. "'Here,' said she, "'you see I have thought of everything. With this cloak you will not be cold.' "'But you?' "'Oh, I am never cold, you know. Besides, with these men's clothes—' "'Will you dress here?' "'Certainly.' "'Shall you have time?' "'Do not be uneasy, you little coward.' All our servants are busy discussing the grand affair. Besides, what is there astonishing when you think of the grief I ought to be in, that I shut myself up? Tell me. No, truly, you comfort me. Come and help me. From the same drawer she took a man's complete costume, from the boots to the coat, and a provision of linen, where there was nothing superfluous but every requisite. Then, with a promptitude which indicated that this was not the first time she had amused herself by adopting the garb of the opposite sex, Eugenie drew on the boots and pantaloons, 
tied her cravat, buttoned her waistcoat up to the throat, and put on a coat which admirably fitted her beautiful figure. "'Oh, that is very good, indeed, it is very good,' said Louise, looking at her with admiration. "'But that beautiful black hair, those magnificent braids, which made all the ladies sigh with envy, will they go under a man's hat like the one I see down there?' "'You shall see,' said Eugenie, and with her left hand seizing the thick mass which her long fingers could scarcely grasp, she took in her right hand a pair of long scissors, and soon the steel met through the rich and splendid hair, which fell in a cluster at her feet as she leaned back to keep it from her coat. Then she grasped the front hair, which she also cut off, without expressing the least regret. On the contrary, her eyes sparkled with greater pleasure than usual under her ebony eyebrows. "'Oh, the magnificent hair!' said Louise with regret. "'And am I not a hundred times better thus?' cried Eugenie, smoothing the scattered curls of her hair, which had now quite a masculine appearance. "'And do you not think me handsomer so?' "'Oh, you are beautiful, always beautiful,' cried Louise. "'Now, where are you going?' "'To Bruxelles. If you like, it is the nearest frontier. "'We can go to Bruxelles, Liège, Aix-le-Chapelle, "'then up the Rhine to Strasbourg. "'We will cross Switzerland and go down into Italy, by the Saint-Gotard. "'Will that do?' "'Yes.' "'What are you looking at?' "'I am looking at you. Indeed you are adorable like that. "'One would say you were carrying me off.' "'And they would be right, par Dieu. "'Oh!' "'I think you swore, Eugenie.' "'And the two young girls, whom every one might have thought plunged in grief, "'the one on her own account, the other from interest in her friend, "'burst out laughing as they cleared away every visible trace of the disorder "'which had naturally accompanied the preparations for their escape. "'Then, having blown out the lights, "'the two fugitives, looking and listening eagerly with outstretched necks, "'opened the door of a dressing-room, which led by a side staircase down to the yard. "'Eugenie going first, and holding with one arm the portmanteau, "'which by the opposite handle Mademoiselle d'Armilly scarcely raised with both hands. "'The yard was empty. The clock was striking twelve. "'The porter was not yet gone to bed. "'Eugenie approached softly, and saw the old man sleeping soundly in an armchair in his lodge. "'She returned to Louise.' took up the portmanteau, which she had placed for a moment on the ground, and they reached the archway under the shadow of the wall. Eugenie concealed Louise in an angle of the gateway, so that if the porter chanced to awake he might see but one person. Then, placing herself in the full light of the lamp which lit the yard, "'Gate!' cried she, with her finest contralto voice, and rapping at the window. The porter got up as Eugenie expected, and even advanced some steps to recognize the person who was going out. But seeing a young man striking his boot impatiently with his riding-whip, he opened it immediately. Louise slid through the half-open gate like a snake, and bounded lightly forward. Eugenie, apparently calm, although in all probability her heart beat somewhat faster than usual, went out in her turn. A porter was passing, and they gave him the portmanteau. Then the two young girls, having told him to take it to number 36 Rue de la Victoire, walked behind this man, whose presence comforted Louise. As for Eugenie, she was as strong as a Judith or a Delilah, 
they arrived at the appointed spot. Eugenie ordered the porter to put down the portmanteau, gave him some pieces of money, and, having rapped at the shutter, sent him away. The shutter where Eugenie had rapped was that of a little laundress, who had been previously warned, and was not yet gone to bed. She opened the door. Mademoiselle, said Eugenie, let the porter get the pochettes from the coach-house, and fetch some post-horses from the hotel. Here are five francs for his trouble. Indeed, said Louise, I admire you, and I could almost say respect you. The laundress looked on in astonishment, but as she had been promised twenty louis, she made no remark. In a quarter of an hour, the porter returned with a post-boy and horses, which were harnessed and put in the post-chaise in a minute, while the porter fastened the portmanteau on with the assistance of a cord and a strap. "'Here is the passeport,' said the postillion. "'Which way are we going, young gentleman?' "'To Fontainebleau,' replied Eugenie, with an almost masculine voice. "'What do you say?' asked Louise. "'I am giving them the slip,' said Eugenie. "'This woman to whom we have given twenty louis may betray us for forty. "'We will soon alter our direction.' and the young girl jumped into the britzka, which was admirably arranged for sleeping in, without scarcely touching the step. "'You are always right,' said the music-teacher, seating herself by the side of her friend. A quarter of an hour afterwards, the postillion, having been put in the right road, passed with a crack of his whip through the gateway of the Barriere Saint-Martin. "'Ah!' said Louise, breathing freely. "'Here, we are out of Paris!' "'Yes, my dear. The abduction is an accomplished fact,' replied Eugenie. "'Yes, and without violence,' said Louise. "'I shall bring that forward as an extenuating circumstance,' replied Eugenie. These words were lost in the noise which the carriage made in rolling over the pavement of La Villette. Monsieur Donglard no longer had a daughter. End of chapter 97 all right. So little Louise and Eugenie hit the road. Good on them. And the whole plan that they had before everything went to Hades in said handbasket was impressive. They were they were not going to stick around to dilly-dally on this one. And it's really hard not to just stand up on a table and cheer when they get out of that situation. Not that, I don't know about you, I didn't think Cavalcanti was ever going to manage to go through with the marriage. Uh, they did sign the contract, so I don't know what's going to happen now. But, ah, there was some interesting stuff going on, not just the bits with Eugenie. Did you notice how careful the Count was not to ever have introduced Cavalcanti? He was at the dinner party, but he wasn't presented by the Count. Things like that so, so careful. And then the Count was the one who was responsible for Louise's letters of introduction and helped her get the passport. These are the chapters where I cannot help thinking, and I've said it before, you can tell the book isn't British from the same time period. This is just a completely different pan of paella. It is not the same thing. And on that happy note, where our two young ladies have gotten away from a really bad marriage situation, I will leave you in what I hope is a celebratory mood, and I'll kick back in with you 
next week for chapter 98. Just one, big and important. And we have a brief voice message from Jessica. Remember that you can call in and share your thoughts at 206-350-1652. But since Heather's at the beach, you're going to have to wait a bit for a reply. Hi, this is Jessica, Hodges00 on Ravelry. I was just calling in because I've just listened to The Count of Monte Cristo, chapters 92 to 94, and I had my alarm bells going off when you're seeing The Count of Monte Cristo start to like Haiti and see her not as a child, but as a woman. And this transition between him seeing her as his child as a, to then as a potential lover, I don't know, just is really creeping me out. What are your thoughts? All right, have a great one. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. A big thanks to all the Craftlet listeners who support the show by being a premium audio member via craftlit.com slash premium or via patreon.com slash craftlit. Your support for the show is what's kept us going since 2006. If you feel like getting free audio pretty much every week, please consider supporting the show by heading over to patreon.com slash craftlit and pledging what you feel the show is worth to you. If you can't support the show that way, consider leaving a review at iTunes or at our facebook.com slash craftlit page or follow at craftlit on Twitter and share the show with your followers too. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.